Hello, and welcome to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get into it today, I want to please remind you to check out and subscribe to my YouTube channel that you can find by searching my name, Felix Levine, on YouTube. And also, if you're listening to this right now, please go to the Apple Podcast app and review this show. That would mean a lot. Also, if you're a fan or a sponsor that'd like to get in touch with me, please visit my website, felix-levine.com, for all contact information. You'll also find all information about myself and the show, as well as every episode in both video and audio formats, as well as photos from every single recording. I also want to give a huge shout out to my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. All of U.S. Wellness Meats' beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. They specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly foods. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. Go to uswellnessmeats.com today, and when you use my promo code PODCASTS, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, you'll receive 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. Go check it out today. And my next guest, I am super excited to have her on the show today. She is a certified sex educator, writer, parent, a sex worker, podcaster. She does it all. Please welcome Elle Stanger. And we're live. Elle, thank you uh, so much for taking the time today. I'm really happy we uh, finally made this happen. Thanks for having me, Felix. So as I, told, told, as I told you a few seconds ago, uh, so a little tidbit, a little story, a little something. Um, there's, okay. there's content out there about you, uh, but perhaps a little something that the world doesn't already know about you. Um, okay, so when I was a freshman in high school, Um, There was a nasty rumor going around about me. Um, First of all, I've been called a slut since I was probably 12 or 13 years old. Um, Kids use it as an insult, um, usually not necessarily even meaning knowing what it means, which it's shaming somebody for liking sex or having a lot of it. Um, But I was doing neither, actually. I did have a boyfriend. Um, He was older. He did turn out to be no good. But at the time, so there was a rumor going around about me that I stuffed my bra, which was kind of a funny rumor because I was very, very small, flat chested. Um, My boobs were cute before, but after I had a child as an adult, I have a boob job now. I am no longer small boob lady. Um, But anyway, so there's a rumor going around that I stuffed my bra um, and that I had jumped off the high dive in swim class and my padding had floated up to the surface. And when I heard this story, I was really hurt and confused because I actually am so shy to be in a swimsuit in front of my peers, or I was. I took softball instead of swimming. Ah, wow. Yeah. So 
When I started posing nude for money on the internet, because I wanted to, and I thought the women were beautiful, I was not surprised that I received a lot of shame and negativity for that um, from some people. And it was actually a lot easier to continue doing adult work when my no good boyfriend at the time, years later, because we dated for four years, um, right before I broke up with him, Uh, he said, you know, nobody was surprised that you started doing porn because everyone said you were a slut anyway. And I kind of learned, you know, it really doesn't matter what people say because they're going to say ridiculous shit no matter who you are and what you do. So you might as well be happy and try to forge ahead with what you want. Now, let's talk about uh, that. I mean, there's there's so much I want to get into, but you know, at, at this point, it's it's one thing to, to be in that industry. It's also another thing to, you've, you've done, um, I mean- uh, you know, your social media following is now massive uh, by a lot by a lot of standards, um, and so you know you're you know, and I can imagine people already get negative comments if you're just you know a regular a regular ordinary folk. But now with especially because you're in a stigmatized industry, I'm sure those comments. Uh, first of all, there's even more volume, uh, and then it goes. I'm sure there's some good ones, hopefully, but I'm sure there's also a lot of negative ones in there. So how do you deal with that on a daily basis? And as you've kind of grown this following and, uh, just, you know, from social media perspective, uh, how do you deal with that? And the emails, I'm sure, I mean, there's probably so much that comes your way. How do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, so as soon as I wake up, I have some coffee and I dive right into my inbox. Sometimes I'm sitting on the toilet. Sometimes I'm laying next to my boyfriend. (laughs) Um, but I just respond to as many people as I can. I, so I would love to talk about, um, my history of sex work. And a big part of that is dealing with reactions from people, whether it's, your personal circle, people you work with, friends, family. Some folks have to worry about being outed, being cut out of their family entirely, being fired from jobs, being harassed at their jobs. So I have been very privileged and very lucky to navigate stigma. Um, As a white, you know, cis, femme person, um, I've had it easier than many. But there's still something to be said for how do we treat people who make themselves very vulnerable and available to the world and how we sometimes feel very entitled to hurt them or make fun of them. Um, I know that being more publicly viewable means that I'm going to interact with more people who haven't lived my life and don't feel the same ways that I do about things because they don't have my experience. My biggest obstacle as a sex worker for 11 years now and published nude on the internet for 15 is usually encountering people who think that I am less of a person or there's something wrong with me because I've worked in the adult industry. Um, In general, that's because our culture usually portrays sex workers as victims or villains. And check this out in anything you watch. It's very unusual that that is not the case. So... There's a lot of shaming that happens towards people for what they look like, for what they like, for what they don't look like, for what they do, for what they don't do. Um, And I think when we talk about sex, it brings up very, well, I know it does. It brings up, when we talk about sex, it brings up very sensitive issues for people. Some people have trauma. There's a lot of people who have abuse in their family. Um, I'm a certified sex educator now. I know that incest is one of the most underreported and understudied things in the country because it freaks us out. We don't like to address how common it is. Bestiality is more common than people believe. 
Um, trafficking usually doesn't look like a white van snatching your daughter off the street. It usually looks like abusive immigrants or cultivating and grooming of runaways by older men who get them to work for drugs and shelter. You know, um, a lot of people have a great fear of the sex industry, the adult entertainment industry, because they do not understand it because it is very broad. And like anything else on a socioeconomic spectrum, there is a lot of variation and nuance as to how that industry functions. So, you know, I could talk about all of this. So give me your questions. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's so much. Well, what, first for me, um, which I was really excited about this particular episode and having you on is because, you know, I, I'll talk to a variety of people um, and most times I'll at least have a little bit of knowledge. Like if it's an athlete, I watch a lot of sports. Like, you know, I'll have like a knowledge on that, that kind of field, but I really, I think that there's, um, and, and I think I speak for so many, we're all for the most part, incredibly uneducated about this kind of sector. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of things that you think, you know, that you don't know, you might view, um, porn one way, someone might view it a different way. So for me, this is really interesting because I get to learn and I, and I wanted to do it like learn live with you as we go. So if there's anything, um, terminology wise that you feel like is important for the listeners is important for myself, uh, just to know, um, that's, that's really helpful. But for me, what I kind of right off the bat just want to know about is if you can think of some of the biggest, uh, misconceptions about this industry, because I think that's a good place to, to start. Um, at least because, you know, I think you can probably tell, you know, more than, more than most that a lot of people view this industry one way and you know what it really is like. So if you could talk about some of those biggest misconceptions to get those off the bat, um, out of the way. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so it's totally great and fine that a large swath of the population wouldn't know anything about sex work or sex industries or adult oriented businesses because you used cars or you used sports earlier, but like, I don't follow sports, but I also don't pretend to know about sports. So I don't go on the internet and make claims about how many athletes are recruited and never paid or abused by their coaches or the systemic racism. You know, there's a lot of white women who go on the internet. I mean, all people, but I experience it from other white women the most um, who tell me how abused I am and exploited and how I could just be a bartender and my child's going to be ashamed of me and I probably have disease. And so it's that kind of frustrating ignorance when people are so, so entitled to speak on something which they have no knowledge of, or maybe someone has very limited experience. Like they dated someone who worked in an industry, you know, that's one person. That's one person. There are hundreds of thousands of us probably in the country. Um, I don't know. There's 7 billion people in the world. So there's a lot of room for variation, but some of the biggest misconceptions are number one, that we all have children or that we are trying to support someone. Um, and that's the only reason we're doing this. I am one of the very few parents strippers, um, in the club where I most primarily work where more of the bartenders and the bouncers have children. Um, you know, and if you have kids, that's great and fine too, because I respect the shit out of all the single and co-parenting um, younger parents who go into the industry because it is their best option for making money that isn't minimum wage. Um, anyway, but we're not all parents. This isn't everyone's last choice. Some people really, really, really love working in the industry. I started at 22 because it was the 2007 um, recession. The economy was shit. That had happened. 
I was my third year in college, but new to Portland. I just moved a thousand miles. And I said, I'm not, I don't have much money in my savings. I'm not going to pay rent out of my savings. So I looked around at a city with 45 strip clubs and I have 10 years of ballet in my background and some performance dance and a ton of customers are saying, you know, you should dance. You'd probably be pretty good at it. So I started thinking it would be a six month stint and I just fell in love with it. So 11 years later, um, not everybody again is so lucky. Some people are working in the industry because it's their last choice. Um, it is not fun for them. It is not safe. It is not respected. They maybe experience a lot of stigma from their friends, their partners, their family, discrimination and obstacles in getting housing or paying for a car or getting another job. This has to do with stigma, not the nature of the work itself. Mm. That's something I want people to understand. Sex workers wouldn't have it so bad if y'all would stop treating us like shit. That's a great point. Um, so... Those are some misconceptions. Um, a big one I'd like to address is that if you are a sex worker, that it means you do everything. So the term prostitute is a legal term, okay, for a an adult consensually having a sex act for money or maybe an item or some other agreement, usually money because it's capitalist society. Okay, so two consensual adults sharing, exchanging a sexual agreement, um, pleasure touch something for a good or service or money. It's called prostitution. So when you call people prostitutes, you are condemning them and criminalizing them using the term because the work is illegal. I don't think we should continue to criminalize consensual touch between two adults because when you do that, it makes it a lot harder to rescue people who are actually being trafficked, coerced, victimized, forced, if law enforcement would stop funneling resources towards stings between an adult who wants maybe a hand job or a hug, because believe it or not, a lot of clients want those, they want closeness and tenderness. You know, <clears throat> if Ohio is a big state for, or Florida, it's a lot of the more socially conservative states that pride themselves on these stings. Okay, who are they busting? They're busting someone who wants to pay for touch. That's not inherently abusive at all. Um, these could be people with severe anxiety or disabilities or their partner maybe doesn't touch them or they're just single. Um, but if the cops would stop doing that, they would stop arresting working women who are probably trying to pay their bills in a unsafe and illegal way because the economy doesn't allow enough jobs for everybody, believe it or not. Um, Cops need to stop doing that. Some places don't do that anymore. I Portland, where I live, I don't trust the police, but I am told that they do not actively target sex workers. They target pimps and people who traffic underage. If you're managing anyone for sexual business for money, it's trafficking because people under 18 by the federal law, they cannot consent to this. So anyway, but I'm told that the cops do not target providers, us. They target pimps, people messing with kids, and clients. They were called Johns. They said, we target Johns. And I said, can I ask you to please stop targeting our clients? You know, um, I dated a boy real briefly um, some years ago, and he shared his thoughts on full service sex work, AKA prostitution, 
full service sex work means that there's probably an ejaculation that happens or some kind of sex or penetration will happen. Um, but he said, you know, there's a lot of men out there that would never have a chance to lay next to a beautiful woman unless they paid for it. And I just think that some people should be allowed to. And I said, fuck yeah. <laughs> so that was before I actually did full service. And that's been also really um, interesting, heart opening, um, stressful, unique way to, to, uh, to engage. I, I really wish it wasn't illegal because there's so many people who just want someone to spend an hour with them, even if it's not sex. You know, this is why cuddle businesses exist. And those aren't very common either. And they received a lot of flack when they opened too, because there's a lot of Americans who believe that you should only be intimate with someone you are in a relationship with, perhaps a heterosexual relationship. And if you're more conservative for having children. Now, uh, going back to something you said earlier between uh, this, you know, this idea that everyone who's in this industry doesn't want to be there. And there are people like you who, who like their, who love their job. Um, if you had to estimate what percentage, because I, I think a lot of people agree with, or, you know, are on that same page of what you said uh, with that misconception of they think that no one really ever wants to do it. But in your eyes, if you had to estimate, what do you, what percentage do you think um, truly love doing it? And what percentage do you feel like? or feel that that's, uh, you know, their only option or are more coerced into, into going into this field? So I'm going to give you a big, long answer because there's a few considerations. I actually woke up thinking about this because it would be very impossible. It's impossible to study sex workers. Most of these sex workers who are studied are women who have been arrested and are going through some kind of court process. So it's a lot of people living in poverty and in dire situations anyway. So number one, how many people wake up every day and are happy to go to their job regardless of what it is? Not, not a ton. Yeah. You know, Americans are depressed. We're overworked. We don't have mental health services or resources through our jobs, a lot of us, or forgiving bosses. So when we talk about exploitation, what does capitalism look like? You know, I hear from people who work for Amazon in the warehouse and their bodies are hurting and they're not allowed to take breaks because they will be punished if they don't ping so many items every 30 seconds. Okay. I've had jobs like that. I've worked in a pharmacy. I was retail and sales management for some years. Um, I've been a buyer of adult novelties. Um, I've produced nonprofit events. Like I've, I've done vanilla work and plenty of us have. So many of us who work in the sex industry we like this job the most, maybe because I do have the most freedom at my stripper job to, if some guy's being a dick to me, I can walk away and hopefully tell the bouncer, um, or at the very least, you know, not allow him to touch me. This is why consent isn't important. But if you're a barista and you have a creepy customer, you might have stricter guidelines as to what you can actually say to him. You probably can't say fuck off. Mm. Um, so a lot of adult workers do have conventional or vanilla jobs, as they call them. We say normie jobs also. Um, uh, I refer to people who don't work in sex as civilians because you guys don't understand the battles we fight. I'm sorry, you just don't. Um, and I would say in my experience of 11 years working in primarily legal occupations, I have done webcam. I have a webcam show tonight. Actually, I'm like sitting on this blanket I laid out because I got my period this morning and I told my partner that we're going to have to figure a way to do gay sex with me and my period. Um, sex work is real work. Um, 
so I've done webcam, um, a little bit escorting, nude stripping in half a dozen clubs. I wrote for the industry magazine for five years in Portland. I have been a facilitator in therapy groups for sex workers of all genders, races, ages, backgrounds with licensed therapists. Um, I go through trainings. People talk about trauma. I attend a community meeting between queer sexuality members, queer and sexuality um, educators and members of the public, and then public safety partners. This includes federal and state law enforcement. I tell them why their practices are bad. The majority of people who I have ever met working in the adult industry, 99% would prefer to be there over their other job or no job at all. Mm. Okay. I have met a couple people who went to work and they were under duress either by a boyfriend or a mother (laughs) that they had stress that they had to make enough money to hand over to that family member. Okay. Um, I attended a workshop presentation that I believe was hosted. I know it was the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department. Multnomah County is Portland where I live. And I don't remember the other government body Um, but it was on trafficking and they said that most trafficking that happens in Oregon is due to, um, it's agriculture workers. So a lot of immigrants that are picking our food and getting paid nothing, jack shit. No, not nothing, but very low. Um, this is why I stopped buying Driscoll strawberries actually, because they have a long history of paying their immigrant workers like as little as possible. Um, so agriculture And what was the other one? Food. A lot of people working in kitchens. So back of house stuff. And I don't, you know, that was said to me, I think nine years ago, eight or nine years ago, it's probably still the case. So I think if people are really concerned about exploited workers, they can go into their closet, go into their fridge, start looking up these companies and look up there if they have any labor practices or any history of, you know, uh, worker abuse, anything like that. Um, there is a great overblown fear that most people working in the sex industry are being held captive. But honestly, we're all just being held captive by capitalism because we all have bills to pay. Every single one of us probably has bills to pay. I know workers that made less than $2,000 because they were stripping so infrequently and they still owed the IRS several hundreds of dollars. So the government's just not set up to support many of us and people doing stigmatized work have to navigate a lot more obstacles. That's what makes our lives hard. Now, do you ever feel like, or do you see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel that perhaps one day this industry will be uh, less stigmatized or, or do you think that it'll always have this, uh, you know, this kind of negative energy or at least from the outside for most people looking in on it, um, you know, with regards to, to how they view it? Um, you know, luckily I, I, I would be really interested to know how many people feel negatively about sex work. And again, it just depends how it's been framed to them. Um, some people are really easy to educate and all it takes is one good experience talking to someone like me. Other people have been raised very, um, just steeped in purity myths and values. So they inherently feel like, because I've touched a lot of bodies with people that I'm dirty, like as if that's how that works, that's not how that works. Um, and also I hate to break it to people, but (laughs) as a sex educator, if you use your genitals, they're less likely to atrophy. So when people try to shame sex workers, like, oh, you're wrecking your pussy or whatever. No, I'm exercising my muscles actually. (laughs) So there's a lot of body shame. 
Um, I think things are definitely getting better in some ways because the proliferation of social media has allowed people like me to be more visible and to clarify some things. Um, Tumblr was great for sex worker writing because people could do it very anonymously. Um, we have lost a lot of those resources and tools to be public and communicate and advertise since a couple of terrible laws passed in 2018. They're called FOSTA and SESTA. They were passed by people who are anti-porn and were told that it would minimize sex trafficking when advocates for sex workers and trafficking, anti-trafficking organizations and tech companies pointed out how this was going to make it worse. And the oh, Department of Justice, upon their review of the bill, they said, please don't pass these. It's going to make it worse. Anyway, a couple laws were passed very easily because they were called Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. And so now websites that host people like me could be held liable for prostitution or trafficking, and they don't want that. So a lot of media platforms are deleting us. This is why tw Twitter was shadow banning people. This is why Tumblr deleted sex workers and all of their nudity. This is why Instagram is banning hashtags like stripper and deleting people's profiles if they don't have a blue check mark, which most creators don't because it's hard to get verified in your industry as a worker. If you're like, yeah, here's my resume. I've made like 60 fetish clips and written all this erotica. You know, the average IG moderator is going to be like, no, nah, that's not good enough. So when you look at a porn company like Browsers on Instagram that has like eight or nine million followers and they post, you know, clearly ads for porn. But then you have a small creator, not like myself now, because I got a blue check mark. I got verified for my teaching work. That's how I snuck that by. Ah. Yeah. How did that work? Because I've been on the radio and TV and I'm a certified sex educator and I published a book. Ah. Respectability Politics. So if it weren't for that, then you wouldn't be ver you wouldn't get. Have oh, I doubt it. No, I doubt it. I mean, there's big porn stars that are verified, but that's because Instagram is a money making machine. So there's a lot of you know, if your porn star has been on around for twenty or thirty years, like of course they're going to keep you on because they can verify your identity. That's the idea. Also, it's like you're proven to exist as a person out in the world, so we can verify your identity. You're probably not being trafficked, is how they figure. But if you're a random creator, which most people are, and they say, hey, this is the club I work at, or here's where you can buy my clips, which have already been verified, by the way, um, by these sites or the platforms, any moderator could look at that and be like, mm, this falls under the guidelines of hosting prostitution. I'm going to delete it. And that is what happens. And so the internet has been wiped very clean of provider profiles queer groups and all kinds of sexuality related things, especially for people who are not white um, or maybe not able-bodied. Um, it's just really, FOSTA and SESTA were really bad laws that actually also made trafficking worse. Um, the San Francisco Police Department and St. James Infirmary Clinic released that after one year of their implementation, trafficking in SF went up 170%. Because providers, individual providers, were no longer allowed to host their ads or advertise so much. So they couldn't make as much money. Mm. So they're more likely to turn to a manager or pimp who says that they can get them work. I see. So when you criminalize adult providers, you throw us into a group with the victims and you underserve all of us. 
So that set us back. That's a pretty bad law. Um, We were, otherwise, sex work was making progress in terms of internet and media visibility and safety. Um, There's another bad law, just real quick, because you're probably into tech stuff, but there's a a bill called the Earn It Act, which is very bipartisan supported right now. And it would give government and police organizations unfettered access to all of our communications by making end-to-end encryption no longer legal. So if you want private messaging like Apple, your iMessages, only you and the the person who receives them can read them. Um, Signal is the same way. But if you use Facebook, any moderator can look at your messages at any time. So pretend you're a journalist with some very sensitive information. You need end-to-end encryption. Or what about a therapist, you know, or a sex worker? I don't want the government to be able to read my messages at any time because they say it's going to fight trafficking. No, it's going to expose all of our information. So I want people to really, and this is everyone, this isn't just sex workers. I encourage everybody to look up the Earn It Act, tweet at everybody who's supporting it, the politicians, the reps, the senators, the congresspeople, and be like, no, no, this is awful. And here's why. Hashtag the Earn It Act. (laughs) So I just want to take you back to something you said earlier. Um, because you're a certified sex educator, will you first kind of define what that really means mm-hmm. and encompasses? Mm-hmm. So I applied to a program. Their website is instituteforsexuality.com. If you want to look them up, it's led by Dr. Roz DeShavo. She has about 30 years in sex education. Um, she's taught all over the place, mostly on the East Coast. Um, so I applied... I think at the time, I know at the time my requirements were to have a bachelor's in something else that was relevant, mine's criminology, and to go through, it takes about two years of training. Um, You take classes, you do live training workshops. I travel to the East Coast, you track your hours. So after I think a thousand hours working in sexuality and then about a hundred hours of live documented teaching to audiences, then I get a certificate. So got that. Um, and this is a training program that is accredited by ASECT, which is A-A-S-E-C-T. That's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Gotcha. Okay. Now, also, when you uh, talk to me about, so you said you were about early 20s when you first got into, into this, 22. And what was it about, uh, do you remember maybe the first time uh, you, was it at a strip club? Was it, what was the first thing you did? And what do you remember Kind of that uh, mentality or, or what what you were thinking or feeling or, or how you fell in love with it? Um, so, okay. So I'd been a nude internet model at a website I won't mention <laughs> um, because they don't treat their models nicely. So F them. Um, I started out that way. And then, so when I went to audition at clubs, I already knew some other nude models that worked for the same company who were strippers. And they all said... You got to try it. I'm having so much fun. Um, You know, like the money can be great. Um, It's great exercise. You know, if you don't like it, whatever. And I was very, 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 very shy. I had interest. Um, I've always been a very sexually curious person. I am a, like, I call it, I'm a happy chronic masturbator. Like I masturbate a couple times every day just because I can. I don't know. It feels good and it's good for you. Um, you know, I've been looking at porn since I could find it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a happy little pervert, but I was very shy. You know, this is the kid who like didn't want to be seen in a bathing suit because she thought something was wrong with her body. Um, 
So I was taken to a couple clubs by my stripper friends and I was terrified. And I remember looking at the women dancing and thinking, I can never do that. There's no way. They move like water. They're so strong. Um, Portland is a very competitive strip club environment in many ways. So you'll see pole dancing. That is just unlike anything you've maybe ever seen anywhere else. Um, some people say it's like Cirque du Soleil and some of the dancers actually are circus trained. Uh, so I saw a couple strippers. They showed me how to tip. You know, they say, if you're watching, give them money because strippers don't like working for no money. <laughs> Who would? Um, and I still wasn't ready to apply. And then I lost my retail job. And then I gave myself two weeks to find another retail job where I was going to audition. And guess what? Didn't find one. Every, every place I went, it was June. And they said, come back in September. Maybe we'll have some part-time. I'm like, I'm married and I pay for an apartment and school. No, I can't. So I looked up a couple of clubs. Back in those days, it was MySpace. They had MySpace pages, um, 2009. And I found a club where, honestly, it was smaller and the women's names on the schedule they had posted didn't look too intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know what to, you know, I didn't know what to look at. I was so out of my element. Um, And I went in and I talked to the bartender who turned out to be one of the owners and the booking manager. Uh, He's still my booking manager today. And, you know, they see auditions all the time. Like he sees multiple a week. So he said, yeah, you know, you can go for it, jump on stage, do a couple songs. Like here's an app. Here's an application. Let me see your ID was first, actually. I have to clarify that. Um, It's a bar. So as soon as you walk in, let me see your ID. Um, I fill out the application. The stripper name I wanted to use was already taken. And so I thought, well, you know what? Let's just use a variation of your real name. Let's just be L. L means she. You know, in Spanish, ella, she, her. Let's do it. So I filled out an application, but I said, you know, I'm not ready to apply yet. I just wanted to come and make sure this place wasn't creepy. (laughs) Um, I don't think that was too, I mean, he kind of chuckled, but it's kind of an insult that a lot of people don't understand. But again, it's that assumption that the place is going to be creepy and they're just intimidating. Strip clubs are intimidating, just like anything else, if it's, if it's unfamiliar. So I actually waited a couple days because I'd had a fresh tattoo. I didn't want to go on the stage. That was my other excuse. Um, waited till that healed, came back. I auditioned, which meant doing two songs. One of them was a Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song. And it was so frantic. And I just, I got so nervous and caught in my underwear. <laughs> I did a civilian thing, which I didn't think about. I thought about how the lingerie looked. I didn't really think about how, in what order I should take it off. So when I tried to take off my underwear, they were stuck in my garter belts because those were on top. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's not a pole dance class. Like it's live. There's people watching. They're judging you. They'll laugh if you fall. They'll also ask if you're okay, but they might laugh at you. Um, so I got through my two songs. I just tried to do whatever I thought I looked okay. I was so nervous. My teeth were chattering. I went downstairs. Um, I was sober for this, by the way. And cause it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, the bartender came down and I said, can I come back and try again another day? She says, you did fine. Like put in your schedule. (laughs) So luckily they don't expect new girls to know how to dance. That's something that you learn over time, or hopefully some of your coworkers might give you a little help if it's not too much of a malicious environment. Um, And I just started, I just started working. I showed up and I met the other women who were mysterious and, you know, some of them had other jobs. Some of them had piercings like on their pussies and, you know, exciting stuff like that. And 
and I just tried to learn a new pole trick. I think every shift for a few months, um, I learned very quickly that people will push your boundaries. I hear this now that I do coaching for people who want to enter the industry and they say, how do I, how do I get people to not push my boundaries? And I say, expect them to, but you have to give yourself practice in setting boundaries and discovering what works for you and what doesn't. Um, I remember a customer, we all called him the milkman because he worked at the dairy building that wasn't too far away. The day shifts, because there's also good food at that club, would get a lot of lunch people. Um, the milkman, he was one of those guys that will, this is how people kind of prey on newbies. <laughs> they will just talk to you and not tip you anything. And they'll get you drunk maybe. They might buy you food, but they're probably not going to get a dance. If they do, they'll grope you um, and then never tip you again. So there's like, there's some cheap skeezy regulars that you kind of have to learn that people will try to get as much as they can for as little, you know, they want your time and attention with a pretty girl and they can tell that maybe you're new and you haven't figured out how to ask them to pay you for it yet. These days, if someone comes in, they came into a strip club. Okay. They could have gone to any other bar or restaurant. They came into a strip club. So if they want to talk to me, if they want to sit at the stage, if they want a neck rub, that's awesome. If they don't, I don't talk to them for more than three minutes because that's a fucking waste of my time. I'm at work. So that is something that I, I experience a lot. And a lot of us do is a lot of folks come in and they're like, oh, it's the girlfriend store. I can just hang out with girls, pretty girls in their underwear and watch them dance and like not tip them very much. No. Um, so there's just a lot of that. It's something that women experience, I think, a lot anyway. It's kind of like... Um, and I don't strongly identify with like being a woman or a goddess or whatever. I, I look femme because it makes me money, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty fucking androgynous and very queer, but it's something that femme looking people experience a lot is men that will assume you're stupider than them and talk down to you and they just want to hear their voice. And so you experience that, but on a greater scale, because now they're coming in specifically to do this and you're a sex worker. So they look down on you even more. Some of these people. Now, how, That's do you, some of it. how do you deal with, um, so you talked about creating those boundaries. First of all, how do you, uh, personally create those boundaries? How do you advise, um, other sex workers who are trying to figure out what those boundaries are for themselves? And then also just finally, like, how do you deal with, um, whether it be intoxicated men, um, whether it be, you know, men that are, uh, or women. Or women uh, that are trying to do things uh, that you have not consented to or haven't explicitly consented to, things like that. So how do you just, um, you know, create those, I guess, human management skills on a daily basis? So know that you're not going to please everyone. Know that you're going to have to cut a lot of people loose and um, you can't keep customers forever. And it's better that you end it early because you're not compatible than to try to make it work and stress yourself out and keep getting your boundaries pushed and put yourself in unsafe situations. Ideally, the worker has enough choice. Okay. If you work in a venue where you don't get to say no to people because the management says you're not allowed to. That's horribly oppressive, but okay, that can happen anywhere. So ideally for anyone, when you're trying to set boundaries, number one, figure out what the rules of the venue are, you know, what your parameters are in dealing with someone. Am I allowed to tell them to fuck off? You know, um, can I say, you know, please don't touch me there. Um, I like to 
notice when someone is leaning in too much and I will create a little bit of space, even if it's just like putting my hands in front of my, my chest, I'll fold my hands. And then this way it's very easy. If someone leans in real quick, I can kind of just throw an elbow like, what's up, buddy? You're a little close. Um, it takes a lot of practice with not being scared or not freezing up. Cause there's plenty of times where it's the fight, flight or freeze thing where am I going to run out of the lap dance room? Do I want to punch this guy or am I just frozen and he's going to pull on my nipple and it hurts, you know? Um, so a lot of it takes practice and just asserting yourself, identify red flags. And this is very useful just in dating in general. If somebody pushes your small boundaries, they'll probably push your big boundaries. So if you're like, Oh no, thank you. I, I don't need a drink, but you know, how about a soda water? not a shot. And they're like, Oh, come on, just do it. Okay. You're already pressuring me to drink more alcohol than I want. So what else are you going to pressure me to do? Mm. These are tips for everyone, by the way. Um, and I want to clarify that we, the majority of my customers, I, I really are great, normal people who don't want to cause harm. It is just important to identify that when you're dealing with the public, there's going to be probably a lot of people that are somewhere in the middle. There's going to be your favorite clients that are great. And then there's going to be shit bags. And you want to focus most of your energy here and then identify the shit bags. So you either maybe get them kicked out or just don't invest a lot of time in them at all or just avoid them. Um, so looking for small tells, people who will push for your personal information, like, come on, tell me your real name. How old are you? Do you have any kids? And there's one thing to be curious, but if you're like, I don't discuss that here and they keep pressuring and pressuring. You know, I've told clients before when they ask me at the club if they can see me later. So number one, by my own practices, I don't do full service with people I just met at the club. I will do full service with people that I have relationships in other ways and I won't go into it, but I don't source my clients from the club. It's a bad practice. I would like to keep them separate for myself. Also, the other girls don't appreciate it and the management doesn't either. So, um, but I will tell people, specifically if they're making me uncomfortable, and pressuring me to do more, I will say, you know, you actually didn't listen when I said to please stop touching my butt. And then after that, you pulled on my bra strap. So if you're already not listening to me here, why would I want to be alone with you somewhere else? You could hurt me more. Mm. And this is something I've said to dudes <laughs> who don't realize they're acting predatory. Um, women's entitlement, women clients' entitlement looks a little bit different, but they will grab you. You know, like I've had women say, I have a pussy too, and it's fine. And like slap me on the breast or the ass or something. They think we're all sisters. No, you're objectifying me. Like I didn't consent to that. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of the rules we learned in kindergarten. Like, please don't touch without asking. You know, you can clarify some like, hi, nice to meet you. What's your name? What do you like? What would you like to do? Just try to socialize like a nice person. Like we're here to have a good time. But if you can tell that someone is immediately like negging you, insulting you, criticizing you, um, you can choose to steer clear of that person. Or if you're, what I do sometimes when I'm feeling adventurous is I see it as a challenge, <laughs> you know, in a way to hone like my hustle skills. But um, yeah, just expect people to try to push your boundaries for your time, for your energy, for your money um, and not respect your consent. And this is across the board. This is all over the place in the world. And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk about my longtime sponsor in Manscaped. The reopening is right around the corner, and there's a chance that uh, for you men out there, no one has seen your below-the-belt areas in quite some time. Don't ruin your first post-quarantine date with a ball fro. You get what I'm saying? Would you show up to the first day of school without a haircut? I don't think so. My friends over at Manscaped have created the best 
trimmer on the planet. It's called the Lawn Mower 3.0, and it is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. They include this in their Perfect Package 3.0, which features not only this trimmer, it has a travel bag, performance boxer briefs, a crop preserver, crop reviver, all of that good stuff. If you subscribe to their Peak Hygiene Plan, you also get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower delivered to your door every three months, which means your trimmer will stay fresh and clean to do the right job. The light is at the end of the tunnel, fellas, and treat yourself for making it through quarantine with this prestigious Lawnmower 3.0. Get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code WTG at manscaped.com. Use that code WTG for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Now let's get back into it. And I have a just a separate question. What, um, you know, when you first got into this industry, what, because I think there's there's another tough thing that I, that I imagine a lot of sex workers go through is uh, you know, telling family and friends what they do and not feeling shame or, you know, because of the stigmas. Uh, and we talk about one, your experiences like that um, mm-hmm. and telling family and friends. And two, uh, if you have advice for other young men or women that are in the, the sex work industry um, on how to, you know, tell their loved ones that this mm-hmm. is what they do and that they actually want to do it, um, if that is the case. Uh, and gen- generally speaking. Um, so I, it's funny. I, I exposed my family gradually. Um, there was one, I didn't intend for this, but it worked out. Okay. After I'd already moved out of my parents' house and I was doing the nude modeling, I was visiting my parents' house and I wanted to check my nude model account email. So I logged in on my dad's computer and my mom, I didn't even think about it. She just walked by and was carrying like a bucket of laundry. And she's like, Oh, that girl looks like you. (laughs) And then she came back like three steps. She's like, wait. (laughs) So she actually, she was okay. It's, it's definitely interesting to reframe it to your parents. And both of my parents looked at porn when they were younger. I know that I've talked with them about it at this point anyway. Um, You know, but like I found their old Betamax porn. My dad had hustler and like stuff in the bathroom and they didn't leave it laying out, but we're two kids and you go through your parents' shit, it happens. So it was really interesting to reframe to my parents that, you know, either either women who work in the sex industry really are bad and yucky and something to be ashamed of, or maybe you've just been viewing it wrong. Like either your daughter is bad and yucky and you're finding out now, or actually the way the industry has been framed is very incorrect and this is why you should support her. My parents are not religious conservatives. They are fairly social and fiscal conservatives. They are Republicans. I am not. So we have butted heads on a lot of different issues over the years anyway. And I have had financial independence for some time. So I was not in a position where they could control me or cut me off or, you know, whatever. However, I do know plenty of people who their parents have found out because maybe an ex or someone else sent their dad or mom a link to their porn site you know, sent graphic images to their parents. Um, This has been very, very traumatizing for people um, and the parents also, because again, many people who grew up and live their whole lives in this culture that shuns and shits on sex workers to suddenly realize that your child is one, that's a huge learning you hopefully can undergo. And a lot of people can't because they can't look at their own insecurities about sex 
a lot of parents can't even talk to their kids about their periods or masturbation or erections or condoms. Why would they be able to talk to them about sex work? So advice for people going into the industry, expect that anyone you know now or will meet in the future will find out because it's a digital age. We have reverse image searches and, you know, all kinds of crap. Um, you know, and, and consider if you can deal with that. Um, I heard from one gal who said, you know, thanks for letting that be known because I have a huge Mexican family. So now I'm rethinking it, you know, like everyone's situation is very unique and it could cause a lot of problems. I knew one woman, this is one example of how much people will shun their own children. One woman, her family did not speak to her at all. She developed a, um, opiates addiction. She overdosed and died. A bartender she worked with and was dating actually found her body because no one else had heard from her. Um, he did the wellness check. And then when her funeral service was held, her family didn't allow anyone she worked with to come. Her own family that hadn't been talking to her didn't allow any of her friends or coworkers to come. <clears throat> so, you know, there's a lot of, it's, it's the stigma. It's really the stigma because if you are like me or many of my friends, where you either like sex or you can disassociate while you do it and don't care. <laughs> I call it disassociate and chill where I'm like, I don't really like this customer. And like, I can just not really pay attention. And I, you know, I'm doing a grocery list. It's fine. Um, but if you can do the work and it doesn't bother you, that's fantastic. But then you have to think about everyone else who's going to treat you like shit and make your life hard because of the work you do. So that's something to think about. And a lot of this also comes from women who just honestly don't want their boyfriends watching porn. Mm. You know, like men have ownership and express ownership over women. Queer folks do it to each other all the time. Toxic monogamy is a thing. But thinking that your partner is the only person that should ever get you off is a very toxic way to inject a lot of ownership and then also stress. So I encourage people to be able to masturbate. Like if I'm having a low libido or my partner is, I know that we can watch porn or use our sex toys or play with a friend because we're also not monogamous, you know, but we have options. I don't look at my partner and be like, why can't you get me off? Or he doesn't demand sex from me. But there are women who literally think you should not be jacking off to anyone else but me, or maybe not even at all. And how do you open up that conversation for, uh, for those couples or those people who kind of have that mentality? Because to, to, it's, it's almost uh, tra a traditional or a historical way of approaching it, right? This, this idea of monogamy is, is very deeply rooted in thousands of years, but it, well. I Only guess. about since, yeah, I think since feudalism. I mean, poly and non-monogamy stuff, still occurs in some cultures, not many. There's a few matriarchal societies around the world that function that don't live with men at all, but they just have sex with them and then they leave. Um, that's not incredibly common, but okay. So feudalism going back to about 900 years ago, when the churches and the Kings figured out that you could tax people for owning property that's when they encourage traditional families because the men go to work and the women take care of the children. So uh, romantic love is actually a much newer concept in our culture. It only dates back to about, I think the mid 18th century in America, the idea of romantic um, relationships and marriage for romance, because marriage has 
And it still is like this in much of the world, a lot of India or poorer countries even, where families arrange marriages based on who can trade what and how they will benefit each other. So the concept of monogamy as it relates to romance is only about 150 years old in our Western civilization. Um, This has been reinforced by more conservative ideologies and governments that would prefer that the men go to work and that the women stay home and that the queers are not allowed at the table and neither are black people or disabled people. There's a lot of um, power, power structures at play in this country that we don't really often think about. So when you, for example, when you force the population to not be able to control their own breeding, like when you limit the access to abortion, you keep people in cycles of poverty. So people who cannot get an abortion have to raise a life. They need a lot more time and help, but if they're caught in cycles of poverty where they already work a ton, no one's to care for the baby, you know, this really limits their opportunities. So there's a lot of things this country could be doing to help a lot of its people. And we have to look at the power structures. Now, how do you, um, on a daily basis, I mean, I've heard a, a couple of your, of your interviews and, and you talk about, um, you know, you addressing mental health on a daily basis. Um, but I could imagine, I mean, and I, and I can only imagine that, you know, it's, uh, you probably hear stories on a daily basis that, just make you want to cry. There are so many different things that are so taxing. And I'm sure, uh, you know, for, for a lot of sex workers, sometimes they'll walk into a strip club, perhaps fearful or intimidated. Um, you know, how do you, uh, keep that, keep your mental health in check? And, and, and then, you know, because you've become a voice for a lot of people, um, for those, uh, men and women who are in the industry who, you know, do have those fears or those intimidations, how do you, uh, is there any, you know, kind of advice that you could give to them on how to uh, maintain a healthy um, mental health state? Um, so just to clarify, because you're not wrong, there's a lot of men and women in the industry. There's a lot of uh, non-binary folks as well. So for all the people, um, for all the people working in the industry, and there is one good resource I really like coming back to by a former sex worker, Lola Davina. It's called Thriving in Sex Work. There's a lot of good advice in that book, and there's a um, companion workbook to it. Um, take breaks from the media. Um, try not to take it personally when you are watching a movie and it's a dead hooker joke or a dead stripper joke for the millionth fucking time. You know, it is very taxing. It's it's taxing to, I think, was it The Price is Right? There was a uh, game show recently where the question was, which family member would you least like to be a stripper or something like that? And I said, oh God, here we go. It's going to be mother. It's going to be mother because you know, I'm a parent. And so that was it, you know, and it's just stuff like that where it's like, oh, it is a reminder that people think less of, of us. So take breaks from media. Try to find your community if you can. Um, Try to find somebody that you can talk to who understands that you don't have to explain stuff to. Give yourself a break if dating is hard because a lot of people have a hard time meeting companions who will also put up with this bullshit. You know, if you think it's hard to tell your family about your work, 
What about your boyfriend's family, your girlfriend's family? Can we talk about that? Just that kind of conversation, what that's like, especially yeah. maybe when you're when you're first meeting someone and then just, you know, once you're with that person, how how they manage what that conversation looks like? You know, I've been really lucky because so far, um, like I've been, <laughs> I've had a lot of partners. I like to love. I've been married twice. I'm still friends with both of them. That was when I tried monogamy two times in a row. Um, not for me. Um, I co-parent with my, my daughter's dad. I have been very fortunate about the people I've dated. And I think this might, actually, this might be why when I date people, I let them know immediately what I do, or they already know if there's any red flags or if they sensationalize it or say something weird, like, Oh, I don't like that, but I can respect it, which is a red flag, by the way, that means it'll come up later. Um, but they never had any issue. And when I met their parents, it was always kind of like either it's not a big deal at all. And we're just glad she's working (laughs) and she treats you good. And, you know, she's nice to us. So I'm really, really, really lucky that way. I will say that with either of, no, with my ex-husband number two, because I wasn't stripping when I was married to the first one for very long, but um, his parents have never brought it up. Um, my daughter's dad is dating another woman in the industry. So that's great. They don't have an issue with it. Cause <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of us here. And then my current partner, his parents are very, very conservative. So we actually thought it might be a thing, but, uh, she told me that I've had such a positive impact on him and I'm so loving to him that she doesn't care at all. Wow. And in a roundabout way, she said that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wanted to to eventually get to it, but I think now's a good time. Just as a parent, um, you know, how, what's that conversation like with your child? Uh, and because I think a lot of people, you know, have no, if, if they were to think about the conversation of what, uh, you know, a sex worker would say to their kid, they would somehow view it in a negative light. How do you, how did you uh, first bring it up? How do you on a, I don't know if, what the conversation is like on a daily basis, yeah. if it's not on a daily basis. Um, and then how, um, you know, what's that experience been like for yourself? Uh, so, you know, everything is, should be contextual to the child's age and their understanding in general. So when she was about, <laughs> I'm going to say, so her dad and I met in the club where I work. Um, when she was, she started speaking very early and she started reading very early and she's still a great talker and reader today, just like mommy and daddy. But she, her first word she ever read was the open sign at devil's point club in Portland. <laughs> she says, mommy, that sign says open. I was like, Oh my God, you know, like you are immersed. And, and many of the people, you know, mommy and daddy's friends work in the industry. So she knows that mommy dances in a bar restaurant place that's called a strip club where the dancers tell jokes and talk to people and give them hugs and dance in their underwear or sometimes naked for money because bodies are very unique and special and it's for a special occasion. I said, you know how I remember is so cute. She's like naked. (laughs) I said, you know how most people in our culture, we walk around with clothes on except for maybe if we're like taking a bath or it's some other special occasion going to a nude beach. I don't know. Um, you know, most people wear clothes all the time. She says, yeah. I said, well, I'm, when I take mine off, it's special and people are grateful. They get to see my amazing body and to see me dance because it looks pretty. So they give me money. And she says, cool. (laughs) She doesn't know about all the shame, you know, 
when she's older, I will tell her that, you know, how I explain that sex is how some people touch each other that feels good all over their bodies, sometimes genitals, you know, mommy does this to people for money. Um, my daughter's eight. She knows what a condom is because we were watching a nature show and she asked what the elephant was doing. And I said, he's putting his penis, you know, so it's been gradual. And when she got older, I explained to her, she asked how often people can mate because she understands that animals have cycles, right? And I said, well, people are unique. We can kind of mate anytime we want. And that's why we have things like these. This is a barrier that I put over a penis if I don't want the semen and the sperm to maybe get me pregnant. And she said, cool. (laughs) You know, so it's been a step-by-step process. Um, again, my biggest concern for her is not about her understanding what I do because it doesn't bother her what I do, because why would it? You tell a kid, oh yeah, I go into a boxing ring and me and someone else, we hit each other and people watch. Okay. Like there's entire industries. It's martial arts. Like, so I'm worried about how people are going to treat her. I don't think it's going to be as big a problem. I know it's not going to be as big a problem in Portland, Oregon, but it's still going to be music and movies and literature and other people and comments um, that she is exposed to that will tell her that her mom is not a good mom because of the work that she chose or the work that she did. And how do you prepare uh, her for, you know, when she gets a little bit older and she can go on an Instagram or, a, or Google or, you know, start really, um, you know, seeing everything that's out there? How do you have you thought about how you're going to approach that? I mean, it's different when you're talking to a five, a six, a seven-year-old and a, and a 17 or savvy 18, 20-year-old. Um, how do you think that you're going to approach that? Well, I made a joke to my dad, which this is different because he's like 65 years old. But when a Huffington Post article came out that I wrote, I talked about all the work I'd done. And my mom said that my dad didn't know I had done webcam. And I said, well, now he does. So avoid cam soda on Saturday nights. <laughs> you know, LOL. And I have other friends who've had parents who did porn, were strippers, were hustlers. You know, a hustler could mean like an escort or a sugar baby, whatever, you know, whatever the hustle is. Um, And some of them were totally fine about it because their parent, I think, engaged without shame. Um, I know two, two women who are ashamed of how unethically and unkind their parents were overall as people. And that came out in the work. So they didn't conduct themselves like well or safely. Um, For example, like I would never take my child on a date with a client, especially not a new client. Like I would never take my kid to go have lunch with a new client. Um, My kid has had lunch with a friend of mine that I met in the club that I've known for like eight years now that we text every day. But again, it's contextual. So her exposure to the adult industry is very peripheral. And as she gets older, I will explain to her, you know, there's pictures of mommy on the internet doing stuff that like you don't want to see. And like, I wouldn't want to see you doing it either, but they exist. I can tell you what to avoid, but shit gets leaked and cross posted. And um, I don't know, she's seen me naked before. Seeing me in a sex act, in a performative sex act would probably be gross and not something she wants to see. But that's like all of us, I think nobody, like we all know our parents had sex or something happened. (laughs) Doesn't mean we want to see it, right? So she'll be okay. Now in terms uh, for you and and moving forward, I mean, you know, you you do so many different things. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, how do you, well, first, you know, 
even just in talking to you for the, for, for the past hour is, you know, you seem like a very motivated person, um, you know, with, with this, this good positive energy, how do you kind of on a daily basis do so many different things? And then how do you, um, you know, move your career upwards? What is, what is, what do you hope your career looks like in five, 10, 20 years? What's, is there, is there an end goal? Do you think about these things? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, it's kind of a shock that I work for myself because I've always had ADHD and I've never been properly diagnosed, but it's been very, very explored at this point. I'm also getting, trying to look into getting tested for autism as an adult um, because I don't know many other people who function like me. Like I usually get up and go right to work and I'm happy working all day. Um, so <laughs> there's some workaholism, but I just like balancing multiple projects at the same time. I like things that challenge me. I like to learn things. Um, this industry moves so fast and it's always changing. So I kind of feel like I have to get up and I have to look at the news. Like I read news about strip clubs around the country whenever I can or sex work. I have notifications on my news pop-ups. I have document sheets of clients I've sold to for years, you know, porn, so I can keep track of it. Like you have to look at it like a business. I understand that no one's going to do all this stuff for me. So I don't know. I'm kind of a weird bird, honestly. (laughs) I don't, I don't think that a lot of other people um, would want to have my hours and it can be really tough on my partner, actually. Like if he doesn't remind me to unplug, I just won't. I'll do emails from clients and want to film content all the time. And if I would have uh, this is kind of like a two-part question. What is a, is a piece of advice you would have given to maybe a, a young 15-year-old L? And if I told a, a young 15-year-old L that this is, you know, the industry and the work that, that you'd be doing now, what would you have, what would you have told me? Oh God, I'm going to tear up because I've thought about this. <laughs> um, I think for a lot of us that deal with a lot of judgment or questioning about, you know, their self-worth or am I good enough? Am I a good person? Am I worth love? Like I realized I'm being the person I needed when I was younger. It's like that saying, they say, be the person you needed when you were younger. I've been doing that. You know, I needed someone to tell me that like masturbation is normal. Don't be ashamed of it. You know, you might be interested in sex. That's okay. Or TV and movies gets shit wrong all the time because it's created by hetero white men who are outsiders. No offense, but a lot of you aren't so altruistic, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I honestly, I would have forged ahead with a lot less shame. And I think that I would have been in a different place, maybe more established and more successful because I really didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life until about five years ago. Like until I became a stripper, I thought I wanted to go into law enforcement to fight abuse of women and trafficking. And then when I started doing sex work, I realized, oh God, we've got this all wrong. Cops don't help. The laws don't help. They make it worse. So so that's why I do things like go to meetings with local cops so I can say, you know, your procedure kind of (laughs) sucks. And this is why. Um, And it is really hard. And I do get a lot of hate mail and I do get a lot of criticism from people in my own community who say I could be doing more. And there've been some missteps along the way, you know, as an ignorant white person who needs to expand and learn all the time. So I would not recommend my path for many people because it has been very hard 
but it has also been very rewarding and unique to me. So um, whatever <laughs> my mom sent me, this freaking makeup bag, uh, she said I could use her work. It has an Abraham Lincoln quote. This is so cheesy, but it's uh, whatever you are, be a good one. Beautiful, beautiful. And do you ever, uh, do you ever think about legacy? What legacy you, you hope to, to leave on, on the world? Hopefully many, many more years of, of beautiful life. But do you ever think of, uh, of what, because now you're, you're inspiring so many people, whether you know it or don't know it. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if that's ever something you've given thought to. Well, I'm never going to write my own Wikipedia page. That's for sure. <laughs> like there's so many people who push themselves harder and sacrifice more and suffer more and they should be remembered. And so many people are not but I am grateful for any sex worker history that still survives. Like Carol Lee is the one who coined the term sex worker in 1977 because she went to a workshop on sex use industries and thought that doesn't sound like what I do. Um, so I think there needs to be more. I, it would be nice. Let me rephrase that. I will not ask any other sex worker to do activism work because I know how hard it is. I don't want to say there needs to be more people doing what I'm doing because I understand why there's not. Um, I would like to see more attention given to marginalized communities and not cis white girls. But until that happens, I'm happy to be a conduit for all the other cis white girls out there <laughs> who do need to reduce their shame, you know, and the rest of us, because it doesn't really matter what you look like. If you grew up in this country, you probably have to some degree, some amount of shame about your sexuality or other people's confusion about theirs. And uh, I just want to bring one more point because I've been thinking about everything other than what's going on. How is, you know, this pandemic and all this uh, coronavirus stuff going to affect this industry? Because, you know, we talk about touching. Uh, that's the biggest yeah. issue with, with, you know, the healthcare or the the pandemic going on. Um, mm -hmm. Have you, you know, what's that going to look like post uh, when you guys are able to reopen? Have there been any discussions? I mean, I can imagine it's also a really stressful time because you're a performance-based industry. If you guys aren't, you know, at, for a lot of strippers, if they're not at the club, they're not making money. So what's, right, what's sure. that, what's that look like uh, for you and for other people in the, in the sex work industry? You know, I'm not really sure how long um, we'll, will want to be wearing masks. I mean, I, my partner thinks he might've gotten COVID in January. Um, my martial arts instructor, I train with, uh, usually once a week, we haven't trained in eight weeks and he actually was diagnosed with it about four weeks ago. So I expect to get it, but I don't really know what it's going to look like and how we're going to re-enter touch industries. I did my last full service date sex with a person um, bleh, early March and the clubs closed March 16th in Oregon. Um, so I don't know. I kind of feel like I've been living on the edge anyway. And to be honest, whether or not you're giving someone a lap dance or not, if you're talking to them at the bar and they're talking, they're spraying moisture on your face. So that was the thing when all the shutdowns happened in the first place. And before we were all wearing masks, you know, I thought at first it was kind of unfair to close the touch industries when we're all walking around breathing on each other anyway. 
Then we learned more about the virus and how much we really did need to wear protective you know, coverings and to minimize risk and, and close the pods. So, you know, I, I think a lot of us were just surprised at the pandemic at all. Um, and there are a lot of workers who only stripped before who for the first time in their lives were grappling with the decision to make porn or sell content because they needed to make money. And there is nowhere else to do that right now. People say get another job where, yeah. There's a quarter of the cars on the road and businesses are shuttered and we don't all have college degrees that we can apply to shit and do digital work, you know, or even not. So there's a lot of people who are entering into porn making right now anyway and are having to make those tough decisions, whether or not they made content before. And so they're grappling with those those tough choices of what their future is going to look like, not only when their content is out and they could be pestered for it later. But yeah, going forward, I don't know if if we'll have like six foot distance rules or not do lap dances. I don't know. Here's to being adaptable. <laughs> um, L, people can find you on Instagram at stripperwriter, on Twitter at L Stanger, website stripperwriter.com. You have the Strange Bedfellows podcast. Um, you have a Patreon, I believe. You really did your research. I, yes, I, thank you. I, I try to come prepared. And is there anything else you'd like to, to plug for the people before I let you go? Yeah, um, to find the Patreon, it is patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows. You can't search it on their website because we are adult-oriented. So we have agreed to be unsearchable on their platform. Gotcha. Fun. Well, uh, Ella, that's it. Oh. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to have you on my show. Um, I learned so much, and uh, and I know that you're inspiring so many people out there. And um, you know, it's it's just amazing to to have people like yourself. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, I wish you and your family and everyone nothing but the best. And uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you for the boost, Felix. This was great.